This week we're going to be going back to the book of Exodus, reading from chapter 15, verse 25b through 26. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Melissa. All right, all right. Matthew McConaughey. Um, so uh, we are jumping back into Exodus. If, uh, if you guys uh, don't know, if you weren't with us uh, before, uh, this is actually not a bad time to jump in, honestly, because um, it's the second kind of half of the book of Exodus at this point. The first kind of journey is done, and I'll give us some context for that. Uh, but we had this chapter two weeks ago on worship, and, uh, and, and that kind of it was like a, a bridge uh, chapter four. So uh, this morning, we're going to cover three and a half chapters of the Bible, uh, which is a lot. It's nothing compared to the end. We get to like that building of the tabernacle, in case you're ever wondering what pillars need to be bronze and what pillars need to be uh, gold and all that stuff when you build yourself a tabernacle. Uh, we'll get there. There's seven chapters of that. Uh, but, but we're going to cover on a Sunday, but today is three and a half. It's still a lot. So I want to pray for us. Uh, I'm Sean, by the way. If I don't know who you are... Uh, Nice to meet you. Um, I'll be in the lobby afterwards, and you can come up and say hi. Uh, this is Redemption Peoria. I'm supposed to give a whole spiel to that, but I forgot to do that. So let's just move on and pretend that didn't happen. Um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us. Like I said, we've got a lot to cover, and I'm going to uh, kind of give us a segue to get there. Father, um, as we open your word, uh, we definitely take the posture that it's a privilege. There is a lot of seeking going on in this world, and um, this morning we get to find, and that's good news, that there is truth in what uh, you've given us in your word. There, um, there's beautiful ideas and poetry and uh, fulfillment of our soul all wrapped up in this book. But honestly, it's uh, just words, spirit without you. And so we pray that you would uh, permeate the room, you'd fill our hearts, uh, direct our minds towards you, give us ears so that we can uh, hear your word well. And then um, I, I pray, God, that uh, it would come alive, that the Bible would make us wise into salvation, according to Second Timothy. It would uh, continue to correct us and encourage us. I pray, God, that uh, there are those in the room who need to hear it so that they can uh, become believers, and there's those who in the room who need to hear it so they can continue to grow in their belief. And I pray both would be true. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to start with an idea that uh, I think sums up where we are in Exodus and will kind of throw us in the right direction. So I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I went to my first Christian camp uh, when I had become a believer. Uh, my f- I think it was between my freshman and sophomore year in high school. I can't remember. Uh, it was either there or between my sophomore and junior. It had to be between my freshman and sophomore year. And um, I went to my first camp, got saved, became a believer, and then I'm at this Christian camp. It was actually at Prescott Pines uh, out in Prescott. If you've ever been there, uh, actually, cool story, full s- Full swing. I actually just preached at that I, I camp there this summer. It was cool to be there. And uh, that was where my call in ministry was. And that first summer was amazing. Falling in love with worship. And um, I won King Camper, FYI, if in case you were wondering. Um, uh, first service was a lot more excited about that than you guys were. Um, but 
Uh, I remember being there and just experiencing God in such a cool way. Now, because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I didn't know what I was experiencing was a common thing that we in the church world had language for, this camp high experience, okay? I just experienced it. I knew God was all about it. I remember deciding at that camp a few different things. I really felt like the Lord had called me to ministry, to be in full-time ministry. Um, I decided I was never going to sin again. Um, And I also decided that everyone at Shadow Mountain High School was going to become a believer because I told them about Jesus. And so I'm on fire for Jesus. We're somewhat on a, a mountain, right, in Prescott. We come down and then school starts. And my own personal reality is that my father's a drug addict. And so uh, reality hits and the luster of being after Jesus Christ and following Jesus Christ, everything that I had experienced that summer, surprise to me, maybe not surprise to you if you grew up in the church, slowly just kind of wore off, right? And this became um, a normal thing because as terrible as that was, don't worry, I had camp the next year, that next summer. And this kind of continued, even as a leader, kind of having these camp high experiences uh, after I was uh, 18 years old. And maybe some of you experienced that as well. If you, even if you didn't, you're probably aware uh, of that language. And the reason that language is important is where we are in Exodus is that type of experience. Meaning, We've just read 14 chapters on amazing ways that God has saved his people. Chapter 15 is this declaration in song of a narrative of how God saved his people. And the first thing we get in the same chapter, we didn't even finish chapter 15 before. In the same chapter is the people of God are singing, singing, and then they come, check this out, I'm not making up this language here, they come to bitter water. They come to bitter water. From this great moment of worship, they find themselves amidst bitterness. Now, God does something really cool. He has them throw in this piece of wood and this water in the stream, and it ends up becoming uh, uh, fresh water, and they're able to drink it. And then he makes this declaration, which was our text. And this is, I think, the right trajectory for us. Uh, It says this on the back half of 25 into 26. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. See, here's, here's why I think this is important. Because me declaring to God at 16 years old that I'm going to follow him, everyone's going to become a believer, I'm never going to sin again, eventually, whether I like it or not, does have to be tested. So, so even in small ways, that's true. But at large within our Christianity, and even at large with the people of God in this story, you love being saved, well, let's see how real this is. And we can get mixed up with God testing us, right? We can, uh, language from Romans and language from James 1. Uh, the long and the short of it is, and I said this in first service, the way that God tests us is a good thing. It's not in the way that we would uh, uh, even understand uh, in James 1, that same type of language, the temptation and stuff, but it's a, a different story uh, altogether. If you have questions about that, I can help uh, answer that out in the lobby. But I want you to see that first part. From this moment of bitterness after worship, it says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. Verse 26 says this, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So in a nutshell, I think what God is saying is, if you choose to follow me, you're going to be tested, but I'll be with you. And then what we have is just this onslaught of these next chapters, chapters 16, 17, and 18, of God working with his people. So I want to jump right in. Remember, they just came from Egypt. They were just saved. And now they are in the middle of a desert. The language that the Bible uses is they are in the wilderness. 
So let's pick it up. Chapter 16, verse 1. If you have your Bible, here we go. They, being the people of God, they set out from Elam, and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the fifth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, the first thing I want you to notice, and if you're new, how we're going to do this is we're going to go through the whole, all three chapters, verse by verse. I'll sum up parts because it's such a large amount of text. And then at the end, I'll go, what can we learn from this? And from the jump, what I want you to see with this story is now they're in the wilderness and the people of God are going, we're hungry. We're hungry. But I also want you to see that it's not that they're just hungry. They're a little bit delusional on what their past was like. Can you see that in the text? They're going like, well, it was so much better in Egypt. Now, if you weren't here for the first 14 or 15 chapters in Exodus, let me just give you some insight as to what it was like. The language that was used was they were in brutal slavery. Day and night they had to work to the point where people were dying of thirst, they were dying of being overworked, and the foggy glasses that they have on right here, they're looking back in Egypt, they're going, we had so many meat pots, we were full back then, and they're looking back on their past in a lot of the wrong ways. They see, they see their past as like awesome, when the reality is, we go back and read the story, it wasn't that awesome. So just keep that in mind. It goes on to say this as they're hungry. Uh, so from verses 4 through 12, you could just be aware, God hears this and he says, okay, you're, you're, the people are hungry, I'm going to fill them. So pick it up in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. So let's just stop this. So right away, God goes, okay, they're hungry, I'm going to supply for them. I'm going to give them dinner and I'm going to give them breakfast. For dinner, we don't see these a lot in the city, but if you drive up to Carefree or Cave Creek, you'll see these quail running across the road. Like it's the only kind of, when the baby's little cute birds, right? And you may not like this if you're a vegetarian, but they just like grab these quail. They just infest the, the place and they just grub on quail every evening. I don't know, it's kind of crazy. Um, okay, so the uh, so there's that first part. That's what they have. Quail um, uh, hits the ground. They, they're feeding everybody. And then in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And it goes into more detail of this dew. And when the dew had gone up, they, uh, there was on, their face of the wild- on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, and they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. If you skip down to verse 31, you'll see that they call it manna. Uh, interesting fact, when they say what is it, the Hebrew word for what is man. Uh, uh, Victor P. Hamilton argues, and a few of the other commentators uh, argue that what they're doing right now, they're calling it mana because it's the same way that we use, for example, we do this with our word what as well. We go, whatchamacallit? Right? We use that thing. We don't know what to do, so we say, what you call it? That's what they're doing right now. They call it man because they go, it's like, it's a what? Did you? what? Yeah, they don't know what it is, right? So that's why they're calling it mana. So there's this bread, and there's this flake. It's like this all over the ground, okay? They don't know what it is, but it seems to be edible, which is, which is pretty cool. Verse 16, it says this. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall uh, each take an omer. Everyone knows what that is. According to the number of the persons that each one of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But they measured it, and, uh, they measured it uh, with an omer. Uh, whoever gathered much had uh, leftover, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till the morning. So um, 
there's this flake-like stuff, uh, substance on the ground. It's edible. He says, gather it, and I want you to eat. But here's the, the uh, trip in all this. I want you to eat it now. Don't store it away and try to eat it tomorrow. God will provide it again tomorrow. Okay? Now, um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I hate wasting food. Hate wasting food. As a matter of fact, you can go in my fridge right now. I had waffles with my youngest daughter on Friday. I didn't eat all the waffles, but I don't know what to do with it. So I put a, a grocery bag over it, sealed it up real tight, and it's in my fridge right now. Those waffles at some point will be eaten. Okay. Um, I just do not like throwing away food. And I think some of it is my upbringing. Um, I remember even when I was adopted in high school, I remember like classic movie scenes, storing away food. Cause I just didn't, that was just growing up. There's a lot of nights where I went to sleep hungry. And so <laughs> I, I get the idea of storing away for security. And this is what the people are doing. They they're told in this moment, God will provide it tomorrow. And this for my own persona, maybe this isn't for you because you never questioned whether or not the meal would come the next day. But I want you to imagine for a second, and if you're in the wilderness and you go, well, wait a minute, like tomorrow we don't have food. You don't store. God will provide tomorrow. This requires a ton of trust by the Israelites. And that's what God's calling them to. And then it says this in verse 20. See how well they did on the trust test. But they did not listen to Moses. They failed. Some left part of it till the morning. And it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when they, the sun grew hot, it melted. So they, they, they do exactly what Moses tells them not to do. They try to find security in their own efforts. Well, we're going to store this away, and the, the bread goes moldy, okay? So let's pick it up in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses... He said to them, this, uh, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay aside and let it be kept till the morning. So they did. They laid aside it till morning and Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms on it. And Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be no more. So just once you get into a rhythm, we're about six days in. Cool. God's providing. God's providing. Oh, I sweet. Okay. You know what? I don't got to store it away. I don't got to store it away tomorrow. There's going to be food. Then Moses goes and their Sabbath was on Saturday, Friday morning. He goes, okay, cool. Today, I want you to gather twice as much because tomorrow there's not going to be any of the flake like crust on the, on the ground. Just once they get the rhythm where they start to, okay, cool. Like, wait, what? So now they have to store away two, uh, uh, twice as much so that they can eat this on Saturday as well. And then the rhythm will continue, right? So there's a Sabbath. I will say, um, on the Sabbath language, it's interesting. I think it's a nod back to Genesis and God resting and that we are fully human when we do this. We're rest because it's also a foreshadowing of the law. We, we haven't been given a command to, to rest yet uh, in the law. So I find that interesting for whatever that's worth. But let's keep going. So on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. Like, okay, we just talked about this. So days one, two, three, four, five, six, go out and gather. Day six, gather twice as much because you're not going to gather. Day one, two, three, four, five, six, they go out to gather. They store away too much. They don't go. They don't think it's going to be there. Finally, day seven comes and they go out to gather. They just don't get it. And honestly, I, I hate to say this, but I felt like as I was reading the text, it feels like a child. Like you're going like, what don't you understand, right? Like you just can't do this. Like, who thinks just pouring water out of the bath is a good idea, you know? Like, and I've told you not to do it, and you keep doing it. What, you know? Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? 
I totally resonate with this. Now, the house of Israel, they called it, named it manna, which we just explained, give some details. They explain it's like a wafer and it tastes like honey, which is awesome. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, there's this instruction from this point that Moses has given from the Lord. Not only are you to gather twice as much on Friday, so Saturday you have food, but I want to mark this occasion. And I want to show you, and there's a few things in this part that are amazing. Number one, God does this not just for a week. He doesn't just do this for a month, but for 40 years, the people of Israel wake up and there's provided for them food. People of Israel wake up and there's provided for them food. People of Israel wake up and there's provided for them for food. Every week, after week, after week, for 40 years, God does this. This is a miracle. And God says in this moment, I want you to take some of it. I want you to gather it, and I want you to put it in a jar. And so he has Aaron put it in a jar. Eventually, we're going to be introduced to this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. That jar is put in the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll find out about later. So there's this, mark this. This is something really, really cool. So now the people of Israel are fed. Awesome. Well, what we get into the next chapter is uh, chapter 17, verse 1 says this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at uh, Raphdim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So first of all, um, we're going to see this a lot, but there are 35 stages in the, the people of God's journey uh, in the wilderness. You'll see 35 different places that they stop. So when it says they go in these stages, that's what they're talking about. But this next part, there's no water. So here's what I want you to know. In verses 2 through 4, if you were to rip out verses 2 through 4 and hold it up to the account we just read, it's almost identical language. Except replacing itself, replacing food, now you have water. And I think that's intentional because what um, God's trying to communicate in this moment is the same issue, just a different place. It was food, and very naturally, you ate, now you're thirsty, now it's water. And that's what we have. In verse 5, uh, uh, we pick up, and the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, taking with them the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which, uh, which, you, struck, uh, which you struck of the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before uh, you there on the rock at Horeb, and you'll strike the rock. Stop real quick. Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that the Lord stands before the people. Always it says that the uh, people of God stand before the Lord. God in this way is, is serving them. I think this is what it's meant trying to communicate. But what's happened here that's different from the language before, it's no longer just murmuring, well, we don't have food, we don't have food. This murmur has turned into a different Hebrew word for complaining. Now they're just outright complaining. And not only are they complaining, they go in this section of Scripture and they test God. They test him. And in this moment, God meets them. He stands before them and, and, and takes a posture of serving them. And he says, Moses, I want you to tap this rock. Water comes out of the rock. And then they drink this water. I mean, crazy. So now they've been filled. Their bellies are full of food. Now they've been supplied water. God supplies water for them. And then the story continues on. It's interesting. If you want to mark in your Bible there, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, it actually brings up this account. The New Testament brings up these chapters a lot, um, and we'll get to a little bit of that uh, later. So from there, that's done, and then we get this account where now food's taken care of, water's taken care of. Now we get this account where there's this battle, and it reads like an ambush almost. Listen to this. Then uh, uh, Amalek came and fought with uh, Israel at Rephdim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. 
Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Ur went up to the top of the hill. So we don't know a lot about Amalek outside of what Genesis gives us. A few things. In Genesis chapter 16, we're told that the Amalek people, they've been in this region for a while. That's probably one of the reasons that as the people of Israel are wandering, they probably wander into their territory and Amalek people don't like that. They could also have heard that they have this water fountain rock that they want to get their hands on or whatever it is. We have no idea. Uh, they're also, Amalek people are also known for like kind of pirating. So they might just trying to uh, plunder all that Israel has. Outside of that, here's what we do know about. In chapter 36 of Genesis, we're told that the Amalek people are the great grandson of Esau. Which is interesting because that makes them the great, great, great grandson of Abraham. The Amalek people are actually distant relatives of the Israelites, which is an interesting fact. Uh, so, so they're now battling with, with uh, Israel going back and forth. And this odd uh, uh, thing takes place. Whenever Moses held up his hand, so uh, Moses is up with uh, her and Aaron, they're on the hill. And when Moses holds up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and her uh, held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So Honestly, I grew a little bit weary of reading how many different reasons uh, Moses' hands being in the air uh, meant that the people of Israel won. Honestly, we don't know exactly. I can say in my charismatic days, uh, I would have gone to like, a raised hand means victory. If you want victory, you need to worship. Those are my charismatic days, um, but I won't do that. Um, I, I don't know. We don't know. The long and the short of it is we have no idea. That's my, that's my charismatic voice. You're all here to worship the Lord. Um, I don't know why I did that, but you get the idea. That's like my character, you know, that's, and I, we don't know fully, but there's just, there's parts in the Old Testament where, where God has given us enough of the story and we kind of go, okay, that's what happened. For whatever reason, when Moses raises his hands, the people of uh, God start to win the battle. When he lowered his hands, they lost and eventually they won it out. Now, what you'll see in verses 14 through 16 is for the first time in all of scripture, someone is told to write something down and actually then uh, out loud rehearse it. And so this is actually gives insight. Moses says, uh, I want you to write this down. I want you to see and remember what's going on. I think, I would argue, this is a little bit of a, um, a looking back and a looking forward for us to see, if we're good Bible students, that uh, uh, Moses is the author of the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, this is the start of that, kind of chronologically putting this uh, narrative into place, okay? So then that's done. So just to be clear, so far, God has provided food, God has provided water, and then God has protected them in battle, okay? All amidst the wilderness, this is what God has done. And then uh, what happens in chapter 18, uh, this interesting account where we're introduced to somebody that we've met before, and it's Moses' father-in-law. His name is Jethro. If you read the first nine verses of chapter 18, uh, there's a few comical things about this. Number one, you're going to see... If you read it, every single time it says the name Jethro, it says Moses' father-in-law. So it's like, okay, and I was talking to Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and he was telling me while he was over there, you know, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he was over there. It just keeps saying it. If you read those first nine verses, um, I don't know fully why. I have a comical reason here in a second, but that, we don't know fully, but we're introduced to this, this guy. We don't know where he's been, has he been, but something amazing happens in verse 10. It says, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because uh, in his affair, they dealt 
uh, arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, I told you, uh, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, uh, Moses' father-in-law before God. Uh, here's what, we don't know where he's been, but here's what's interesting about this account. There's two things. Number one, notice that Jethro, um, he, he comes to the camp because he's heard what God has done. Like what God did, that whole parting of the Red Sea, those plagues, God's made himself known. And if we remember, Jethro was a Midianite priest. So he travels uh, about and he hears what's going on. And so he finds Moses uh, and Zipporah, his daughter. He finds the people of God. And he goes, listen, we, I've heard about what's going on. And then I want you to look here uh, in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. Every commentator, and I would agree, argues that in this moment, Jethro turns his allegiance away from the Midianite gods and he turns them to God. He becomes a believer in this moment, which is really, really cool. And it's based on what he's heard God has done, which I think is amazing. So the next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that was being done, or all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me uh, to inquire of God, when they have, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, and the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Uh, so I want you to imagine here's Moses and remember we've chronologically kind of put this in order. Uh, and as we looked at the history, there's over a million people with all these people. So I want you to imagine a very large chunk of the city of Phoenix and there's one judge, one judge to determine all of, uh, foster care and adoption decisions, all misdemeanors, all felonies, every big decision, one judge. Imagine a million of us having to go to this one judge. And Jethro's declaration is very simple. You're going to wear the people of God out and you're going to be wore out. This is not a good thing, okay? This is not a good thing. Um, and, and what I want you to hear what he does next is not just a push towards a leadership module, but it's something more that I think we can see. Listen to what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 21. He gives him advice. He says, heed my voice. Look in verse 21. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall uh, bring to you, and any small matter they shall decide for themselves. This sounds a lot like our court system, right? So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So um, this probably is a quick just kind of leadership. It's called ecclesiology moment that we can talk. Um, A lot of you grew up in what is called the Moses model in church uh, leadership. So essentially what you have is, and I think this is a dying breed within uh, church planning and church culture, but there are still remnants of this. And even some of the prosperity gospel stuff still leans into this. But there's one man, he's the man of God to the point where you can go to a very large church and the man of God is roped off. You couldn't even get close to him. He has all the vision. He has the dreams. You listen to him. He's kind of the the go-to. And everybody 
else kind of falls in line. This is the Moses model of leadership. Now, uh, we would argue, we would contend that is not a correct model. It's not a New Testament model. We hold to an elder-led church. I have one vote, just like all the others. But there's multiple reasons that I think we can speak into this outside of leadership. So what we're seeing here is there is one person that everyone could go to. And and I want to just acknowledge some of that in the room. For some of you, uh, and I've been there for sure, where um, I think that there's this one stream, like maybe I would have all the answers, or maybe your community leader would have all the answers. I want to encourage you as we push forward towards kind of New Testament theology, why this isn't good for Moses and for the people, specifically as we find ourselves in the New Testament is, hear me, you have the Holy Spirit. We together are a priesthood of all believers. And so, so this sounds crazy, but God uses you to speak to you. God, and, and it's not meant to be just this one-way thing, but God continues to use the body together to speak to the body. And yes, he gives leaders, and yes, there's order to all of that. That's beautiful. But you need to remember together, if we try to continue to just go to me or just go to an elder, we're going to wear out. I'll die, the elders will die, and you'll, you'll be in a long line to wait to talk to us. But rather, hear me, we have each other. We have each other. God desires to use his people to speak to his people. And if we do this right, as Jethro says, it will bring us peace. But I think there's something here that we can get to in verse 24 that I think I find. This verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, I found a little comical. Maybe it's my own personal bent that I saw on this, but I want you to see. So Jethro gives this advice, and verse 24 says, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Um... That's a little funny. I, I think like the Red Sea, that's awesome. A man listening to his father-in-law is a big deal. Um, and I don't know, like maybe even if you have a good father-in-law, the reality is there's still kind of like you want to kind of do your own thing. My father-in-law, he's a contractor, so he builds houses. So when I build like a turtle area to mark off where my turtle is, I'm like, I put those two by fours together. It's great, right? Well, he builds houses. And so when he gives me advice, I know he knows more than me, but I kind of want to do my own thing, right? Well, Moses is here. He listens to his father-in-law. Some of you, Uh, probably don't have a good relationship at all with your father-in-law. Imagine listening to your father-in-law, okay? I don't know. I think that's crazy. But now I want you to look at, look verse 27. It says this, then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. This is kind of funny um, because we all don't have father-in-laws like Jim, right? So Dakota hit the jackpot. If you, Jim, if you, you know, if you married Amanda, then you're, you're in great position. But if you have a different kind of father-in-law, Moses in this moment goes, okay, I listened to him. He implements all that his father-in-law says. And then he's like, hey, don't you got to be in Glendale in like an hour? You could go, just go, right? He's like pushing him out the door. Um, Jethro, it's time for you to go. I'm running my own thing here. I don't know. Maybe this is my own personal baggage I need to go to counseling for. I have no idea. Um, so Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. End of story, right? Here, here's, I think the overarching tone of that last part. God gives the people of, uh, of God organization. He gives them structure. He gives them government. He's good. And so he provides food. He provides water. He provides protection in battle. And then he provides this security and structure. And that this all takes place in the wilderness. And so the big question that I, I want to ask in all of this is, well, what do we do with this? I mean, so much of Exodus has been confusing for so many of us because the reality is, like, we're not dealing with trying to put together organization and we're not dying of starvation or we're not so thirsty we're complaining to God. That, that's not happening with us specifically in our context. Maybe other parts of the world, but that's, it's hard to correlate. But I think there are many things, four specifically, that we can look at here and go, Oh, wait, I'm just like the people of Israel. I, I, I see this. 
Because I, I think what God, as we go back to the beginning, God has been testing his people. And for a lot of us in this room, and you say you're all about the ways of Jesus, but how are you all about the ways of Jesus when you're hungry? How are you all about the ways of Jesus when you don't get what you want? Are you all about the ways of Jesus when the, the, the political kind of direction doesn't go where you want it to go? Or when your kids go in the wrong direction? Or someone dies? So there are four things that I, I want to bring up that I think are worth, as we look at the people of Israel in the wilderness, that we can acknowledge. Number one, when you're in the wilderness, um, you can tend to have uh, rose-colored goggles on when it comes to your past. We saw the people of Israel look at their past, and it just I'm talking to the believers in this room. If you say you follow Jesus Christ, let me tell you what's going to be tempting to you. What's going to be tempting to you, six months, a year in, two years in, you're going to find yourself gravitating towards ways you used to find comfort. And like the people of Israel, you make this declaration. I remember back then we ate from the meat pots. It was better. And it's easy. Some of you have a very sober reality of what your past was like. You remember what it felt like to be empty, even though you're striving for fulfillment. You remember what it was like to be uh, a broke, even though you had all the money in the world. You remember what that was like. But some of us teeter this line, looking back at our past as believers and going, it wasn't that bad. I, I see this in spirit. Spades, dozens upon dozens of people who uh, relapse out of sobriety, drug addicts or alcoholics. What 99% of the time what happens is, and my dad happened to, when he uh, relapsed, he's, he's, he's uh, eight years sober now, but when he relapsed for that first time, he said, man, I looked back and I saw my old life and I, I was like, I kind of forgot how bad it was. And the moment I took that hit of meth, I remembered. We forget. And so as the people of God, I, I want to remind, Be careful. Be careful, that old life tends to look appealing in the wilderness, but, but just be. Which leads to, I think, the second thing that I think is worth uh, uh, bringing up. Everyone in the room will experience wilderness. And, and I don't know if I can say this strong enough. Even in our Western culture in America, where we have pretty much anything we want, where we can pay extra to get it delivered in 24 hours, um, there are still moments where you don't get everything you want and many moments where you don't get everything you need. And so hear me. Suffering is coming. Wilderness is coming. It's just, it just is. Uh, and this is true. In New Testament theology, I need you to see this. So uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, you can turn your Bibles there, but I'll have it on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to what this says in verse He's been talking about how God alone saves, God alone saves. He has an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, undefiled. In verse 5, it says this, who by God's power and being guarded by, uh, through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. So we rejoice in who God is and how he has saved us. Yes and amen. But listen to this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, those two words are a trip, aren't they? If necessary for the believers in the room there are necessary moments where you've set your gaze on your old life and god goes remember and 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 you experience and you're sobered up and you remembered my hope is not in this world my hope is not in this world and so hear me there are moments of various trials listen to what he goes on you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested talked about this from the jump didn't we the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and uh, at the revelation of jesus christ let's know if this faith walk is legit or not and to do it i'm taking you through the wilderness he promised to get them to the land of milk and honey he never said how he was going to do it and it's through wilderness it's through wilderness which i think if i could do like a uh 
uh, third point and kind of a 3B to this. I think there's something to be said amidst the wilderness. Um, I want to put in front of all of us that just because you're in wilderness doesn't mean God is not with you. All through all of this, there, there's a, a tempting thing to feel frustrated. You feel alone when you're in this wilderness. Uh, Justin Martyr had a, a, such a boss statement uh, to the emperor of Rome in the first century. He writes in this, his, this letter, this first apology, and in the letter he says this, you can kill us, Caesar, but you can't hurt us. That's a trip. You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. Listen to like the pathology of what he's getting at. Like you can take our bodies, but you won't be able to hurt us. There's something deeper, better, more fulfilling in our bodies. And so, yes, we go through wilderness, but we need to be reminded of where our real hope is, which I think 3B I would give it, which means we need to be careful that when we're in the wilderness, that we're not putting ourselves in the seat of tester. And that's what we see in this text. And go back, look at it. You can see there in, in, uh, in our text. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So, like, we're doing this on small ways, right? Um, so, I'm, right now, I'm continuing my education at Phoenix Seminary. And uh, part of that is I have class until 345. And so, I got to drive from there. Uh, or I'm sorry, 245. And I got to drive from uh, Scottsdale to pick up my kids in Maryvale right? And so they get out at 315. If you're not there by 345, you got to pay $10. So I feel like it's doable. Most days it's doable. Well, one day, this is about three weeks ago, I'm driving and I hit one of those traffic stops and I'm like, why is this happening right now? And I'm going to lose my mind, like ram the car in front of me for no reason. I'm just going to lose it. Okay. And it's one of those stops where it doesn't make any sense. Everyone is smashed into one lane and there's just three lanes, four miles of three lanes. Like you ain't doing anything over here. Why are we all in one lane? One of those frustrating moments. And in that moment, here's what I'm going through. I'm so frustrated and you can, it's a myopic view, but you can see how crazy this is. But here's what I'm thinking. This is my logic. I'm going, okay, so you listen, you gave up, you gave us money. And so now I'm going to have to give this $10 to the school. That's what you want. You want my kids to not meet for me, not to be there on time and them to wonder where their dad is. That's what you want. And I begin to judge God. And so I'm making these declarations, God, if you want this to happen, get me out of here. There's nowhere to go. All of us experience this. Every person in this room has experienced being in that type of traffic jam, that kind of frustrated. But I have from this perspective, a very, uh, uh, myopic view of here's what needs to happen. I put myself in the seat of judge. I know what's right, God. I need to be at Maryvale at 315. Get me there. And we need to be careful when we're in wilderness. Hear me, because that's a silly example. But some of you have sat, have sat in the hospital room next to the, 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 the loved one, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brother, and sister, and they're going to die. And you put yourself, as difficult and as normal as it is to be human in that moment, but you put yourself as the tester. Because you know what's best, and what's best is that they live. You know what's best. Be careful. Actor Victor P. Hamilton actually acknowledges this. I think this quote is phenomenal. I'll try to read it slow because I I think it's worth um, seeing every line he puts in. But here's what he says. So what is the problem with testing God? To test God is to pose an ultimatum, which we uh, decide what shall count as evidence of God's presence, and then decide on God's presence or absence on the basis of whether or not God has met the test we have posed. It is not, or it is to set God up to try to force God's hand in order to thereby determine concretely whether God is really present or not. In essence, testing God is demanding that he jump through our hoops and make himself answerable and accountable to us. Sovereignty passes to us. Because that's blasphemy. 
And it's normal to feel frustrated. It's normal to feel hurt, to want them to live, to not want to lose this job, to not want to experience pain. We weren't meant to experience pain in our original created order. That's yes and amen to that. But as believers, what we're missing is all of the wilderness and all of the pain and all of the suffering is to reorient our mind back on the things of God. To keep our mind, to grow and to count it as joy. And not like half-heartedly, not in a silly way, wearing the Jesus co- uh, cloak like you've got it all together. But no, to recognize amidst this pain, Jesus, I trust you. That's where we're going towards. This testing of our faith is good. It shows how real it is. So I would just be careful to not put ourselves in the position of tester. And then this is where we'll finish. Um, I just want to acknowledge... Um, this account is brought up in chapter 16, 17 specifically, is brought up a ton of times in the New Testament. God providing food and water is used in all kinds of ways. Uh, and, and, and I think the first thing that we can recognize in, amidst the wilderness that I, I don't want to swing so hard that God is just some kind of manipulator making us suffer. I also want to acknowledge in this story, and it's true in our lives, that God is a provider. Like as difficult as it is to see in the wilderness, look at me, he's got you. He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. He's a provider. And the same prayer for this bread, and and maybe even through murmuring as well, is what Jesus leads us into. Yes, you work for it, but the reality is you should pray for it. God, give us this day our daily bread. But more than that, he doesn't just give in the same way. He gives us in a better way in the New Testament. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn your Bible real quick. To John chapter 6, okay? I don't have it on the screen because I want you to see this. Um, what Jesus does here is amazing. There's three times where this bread comes up uh, from Exodus and it finds itself in the New Testament. And uh, I, I want to read uh, uh, from two of them. So th- this first one is in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, um, the people are grumbling. And there's this back and forth of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, compared to what the forefathers have done and what the forefathers ha- uh, did. And so the people of God here are hungry. And this is their declaration in John chapter 6, uh, verses 30 and 31. It first starts with, what miracle or what miraculous sign then will you give us? Look a little bit forward ahead from that. What miraculous sign will you give us? They're talking to Jesus. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he. Now that he is directed to Moses. It's really important you know that. The people are going, we've been going back and forth. What, what sign are you going to give us, Jesus? Because Moses, before us, and they've been talking about Abraham and all that. We'll see Abraham in John chapter 8. Before us, Moses, he provided manna in the wilderness. It's a reference to what we just read in Exodus, Okay. What Jesus does is so ninja, right? Like it comes in so clutch here. Listen to this, verse 32. This is such a classic Jesus thing to do. Um, He responds in verse 32 with this. He does two things that are amazing. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now it may be missed, but there's two things that happen. The first thing, uh, Jesus changes the pronoun. So that he, where he says, he, you're referring to Moses, you're wrong. Moses provided nothing. My father provided things. My father provided bread. So he takes their statement and he begins to dismantle it. No, 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 no. Moses provided nothing. My father provided the bread. Let's get that clear. But not only that, he changes the tense of the sentence structure. So where they read, uh, what, uh, let's go back to, I'll read in verses uh, 30 and 31. 
What miraculous sign then will you give? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, uh, he, being Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. Listen to Jesus' statement and how he changes uh, the tense. The, the tense is like past tense, present tense, future tense. Listen to how he changes it. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. You ready? But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So yes, it's true back then. Here's the people of God wanting more. Jesus' declaration is, no, no, no. The true fulfilling bread, yes, you'll eat, but you'll be hungry again, is standing right in front of you. He has given you me. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one who fulfills right now. You don't have to rely just on what happened before. Right now, the offer stands. I'm the true bread. I am the fulfillment. What they, what they and you were searching for in the wilderness to be full, to be satisfied, won't be found in the things of this world. I do that. It was a foreshadow lending its hand to me. He actually tells the woman at the well the same idea when it comes to water. The same exact idea. Then let's take this a little bit further. I want you to turn your Bibles now, and this is where we'll finish. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to go to uh, uh, verse 15. I'll read from verse 14 as a little bit of context. But the same idea is brought up, okay? But now let's take it further. First, God, yes, he provides us food. He's the one who takes care of us. Then, God, he provides us something better than food in providing himself. And now let's take it a step further. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 15. You'll see verse 15 is uh, recognizable. Let me read 14. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much, this is going to sound familiar, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul now takes what Jesus has been saying, and he builds on it, and he says this, um, you have an abundance, and they have little. You have a lot, and they have little. Remember back in Exodus? Remember that there was no lack? Remember that? Let's take the Lord's Prayer, and this is what I think Paul's doing. Let's take the Lord's Prayer, and let's pray it like this. Lord, give us this day our daily bread so we can give others their daily bread. We have so that we can give. We've been given so we can give away to deplete ourselves. And hear me, this becomes real tricky because so many of us, give me grace in saying this, we're finding our security in what we're storing up. And like, uh, this is like, uh, you know, when we, we begin to have this conversation on retirement, it becomes real tricky, right? Because we have this conversation we're storing away because maybe we don't trust or whatever it is. But I, I'm saying, like, you got to wrestle with that a little bit. you got to wrestle with that. Uh, even now, I have a, a retirement set aside so that in the future I don't have to work. I can work for the church for free. But it's not selfish motive. So I want to be careful that we're not storing aside so over the last 15 years of our life, dare I quote my man John Piper, we can gather sea, uh, sh- seashells by the seashore. Well, that was almost got the tongue twister game going there. Like, I want to be careful there. Be careful that you're not living your life for you. You're, <laughs> that's against your own soul. That's against your own soul. To store away for you, to care about you, to make the world about you, to make your future about you. You weren't made to do that. You're working against your own humanity, the Imago day within you. So store away to give. Receive to bless. That's what, what Paul's putting in front of us. No one may have lack. The people who are suffering in this world, it's the people of God's responsibility. Let us step up to the plate. We've been given not just um, physical food, but we've been given spiritual nourishment in Jesus Christ, both to share with the world. I pray that would be true for us. Let me pray. Lord, um, 
we pray that as we process um, a lot of texts that you would help us regurgitate it well um, to those who would ask. And that requires, um, that requires us digesting it well and honestly understanding it. And um, that's not easy uh, at times with so much text here, but I do pray that you would help us uh, get there. I pray that um, you would show us that if we're trying to store away security out of fear because we don't want to trust, I pray you'd let us see that well. Uh, we would recognize being in the wilderness as part of living, that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. And then that's to reorient our mind towards the things of God. So help us do that well. Um, so many things that we can talk through in these texts, but we did our best to kind of gloss over the surface. So help us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.